you, Sergey. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, I'm going to be a moderator for this event. Um, my, my name is Sergey Ross, and uh, our awesome panel today we have uh, Ram Al Kamal, who is the founder and CEO of Crowdlinker, and we have Torgod uh, Jabarli, who is a senior delivery manager. Uh, we unfortunately miss Fiona Holler, who is our director of product. She has to take care of some of the client work, which, uh, as you probably know, never stops. I will, I'm expecting, we are expecting about 50 people joining this call, maybe more, which is really uh, incredible. Uh, and if you have to jump early uh, from this meeting, then we'll, you'll have a recording, but we are, we'll be doing quite extensive Q&A in the end. So if you have questions already, type them in right now and we'll address them as we go. Or when, as you're listening further along into event, type your question and we want to uh, get them answered as many as possible. Just a quick reminder, what are we covering today? We are talking about how we built MVPs that are on budget and on time. We also will talk about the most skipped areas in building MVPs, which uh, you probably want to know more about, and what does the process of validating it correctly, MVP correctly looks like. Um, and we've been doing it, Crowdlinker has been doing it as a product studio for uh, about 10 years is actually our anniversary this year, which is amazing. So with all that, let's get started. And the first point I want to bring up to the audience is how to define your audience correctly for your MVP. What do we need to think about to, uh, in, in that sense, Aram or Turgut? Sure. Thanks, Sergey. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, so uh, first thing that you should really identify is... Um, what is a problem statement that you're trying to solve um, when it comes to building out an MVP? Um, you know, it's it's quite hard, you know, to to think through that in terms of what's involved to create a problem statement. But try to really focus on um, making it as simple as possible for anybody to identify with as something that uh, could resonate with them. Um, now, I'm, I'm sure you're all working in different industries or verticals and things like that. So for each of you, it's probably going to be different. But once you kind of have an identified problem statement, um, it's not super important to go and figure out what the solution is right away. Um, don't try to go jump to the solution. I mean, if you have an identified problem that you think is um, there in the market, your best bet is to go and test this theory or this hypothesis out uh, with a potential target audience. So with your problem statement that you have is uh, the next step is trying to figure out, okay, where are these people? How do I find them? Where do I reach them? How accessible they are? Uh, are some of the things that you should think about when you th you're thinking about how to reach that audience? Um, in many cases, you know, when it comes to um, building products, uh, you might be in the realm of that industry already. So you might have access to those individuals if you're fortunate enough that you could go to them and ask them um, and those, these questions and go through like a bit of a discovery process or customer development process with them to try to see if that problem that you think exists uh, um, verifies with them at the end of the day. But how do and, we actually, Aram, I just uh, will jump in. How do we actually define the audience or maybe some questions that we need to ask, the audience needs to ask, to ask, say, hey, this is the very specific set of people that we need to be going after. Yeah, sorry, good question. Um, so that comes down to figuring out who your user persona is. Uh, so user persona is a mix of demographic, psychographic information. Um, so like it could be as specific as somebody's age, location, 
um, uh, type of consumption, spending habits, discretionary income, like all these kind of things, um, in order for you to kind of like uh, write out what makes that person tick. Um, once you kind of like can help flush that out a bit more, that becomes potentially your target audience. And like, mind you, this might change with your learning process when you're going to be going and speaking to these people because your initial ICP, your ideal client profile might change through learnings that you go through in the initial processes of validation. Um, but really like it just comes down to like trying to uh, zoom, zoom in as closely as possible in terms of who is your actual user um, who's going to be using this product uh, at the end of the day and then figuring out what their you know, journey is like when it comes to finding um, your product in terms of um, appeal and problem um, and uh, trying to get access to them and speaking to them. And there's many different ways that you could reach these customers. It could be through, throw, through forums. There's many tools out there like usertesting.com, usabilityhub.com, Maze and a few other ones that you could use and leverage in order to, to reach out uh, to that specific target market and um, either at, you know show them something or demonstrate something or uh, do a survey or whatnot in order to ask, ask your target market directly some questions. Very good. Anything else to add, uh, and especially maybe something that helps people to do it quickly, to start working with your audience quickly, not to overthink things? Yeah, um, great starting question. And one thing I will add is if your target audience right from the like starting point is 1 billion, this is obviously a, just an audacious number, you're already doing it in the wrong, right? So MVP, which is a minimum viable product, your ideal target customer might not be using that from day one. So you need to really fine tune that to what's the who's the target audience that you have that has the most burning need that definitely use your crappy MVP from day one. So that has to be your target audience. And if you are making a lot of assumptions over your audience, then that they need to be um, tested through different means like interviews, surveys, uh, market research. And to get to, to the end result faster, uh, you can do a very quick market research around your potential competitors. Who else out there are uh, already providing such a similar service? How are they solving for the current problem that you're trying to solve on a, maybe as a manual process or something like that? So try to find these people and try to understand what they think, how they think and where they are and where, what platforms they live in. So once you figure this out, uh, which is, fairly much easier process. Once you figure this out, it has to be tested and make sure that your, your problem statement is actually aligned with them because sometimes that's not right. What you think is the problem early on is not going to be the end problem statement that you end up with. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so just one thing to add there. No, you want to add, yeah. I wanted to say something earlier. I forgot. It was that every, when it comes to an MVP, as Target said, it's a minimal viable product, but think of it a different way. It could be a minimal sellable product, MSP or um, a minimal marketable product. So like, I, I like those two other options because it's like, uh, from a sellable standpoint, is like, what can, what is the most minimal thing that can, you know, lead to somebody paying for it and making it um, sellable? Um, and as Target mentioned, it should only really do one thing and should do one thing really well that is a burning point for others when it comes to solving that specific pain point. 
Now we have, uh, we, we're going to move on to another point, which is uh, quite important. We have received quite a lot of questions. The last time is how do you keep your MVP on budget? Of course, everything is contextual. So what if we do it in this way? Uh, if we look at startups and we look at enterprise on a high level, what do we need to do to make sure that MVP doesn't balloon into a million dollar um, MVP, quote unquote, which is, of course, it's not for a bank or something that is overly expensive for a startup. Yeah. Go ahead, Target. Yeah, I can start from the startup perspective and or maybe you can give examples around the enterprise. So for a startup, MVP will be different than an enterprise, right? So for a startup, they have more flexibility in terms of breaking things as the Facebook culture won't introduce to us, but the enterprise doesn't have that luxury as much, right? So with a startup, you can actually build a very manual process uh, driven product and push that into the market fairly quickly and get that feedback. But it's obviously completely different uh, in their uh, world of enterprise. So that needs to be clearly defined. And one thing that I have learned working with many, many entrepreneurs, founders, early st stage employees of these like uh, startups is they are extremely ambitious. They are very excited about what the potential vision of the product can do. And they always get side, uh, like sideways by that uh, ambition. So you really need to get them aligned on what that main core of product and problem that they're just solving for and get them aligned on it. So if a product takes more than three months for a startup to build, to go to have a minimum marketable, sellable, or viable product, uh, it's already something was already happening wrong there, right? So it, no matter how complex your product is, you need to be able to go to market fast, especially for a startup. Obviously, this is going to be different for different companies, if, like especially in the enterprise world. But the time has to also be part of the conversation. You cannot just go and talk about different features of the problem sets that, hey, it will be ideal, it will be great. Uh, no, is it... What's the minimal enough product that's enough to get a user to start using your product and get a value from it? So that's where we actually should start for a startup. And I will let Aram to talk to more about the enterprise part. Yeah, just before I get to the enterprise part, I think budgeting, it's always super hard to plan out because in order for anybody to create a budget around, they need to know what they're doing. And so that typically involves some sort of like functional requirements, some sort of product requirements document or, you know, or something like that. And then ideally there should be some sort of like design or even a mock, you know, even if it's like on pen and paper uh, that could be like put, you know, put down because then you're then more contextualizing or compartmentalizing a bit more in terms of what it is that you want to create. Uh, what you don't want to happen is uh, a product that has more than one feature. I know this is going to sound a bit strange, but like, I feel like an MVP should really have one main core feature and that does one specific job to be done. And then that's, that's kind of it, right? You're testing that one thing. Um, so budgeting is always a difficult one. Um, we've done we've done MVPs in like the the twenty five to forty k range before. Uh, it is achievable, but it just requires a lot of focus uh, in order to um, make that possible. Um, it requires potentially descoping sessions in order to try to minimize it even more, uh, in order to kind of get it within a certain type of budget that you have. Uh, but whether or not 
you work in an organization, which I'll talk about next in an enterprise is obviously in an organization or a small medium enterprise, you need to go and get some budget in order to do some sort of MVP. Uh, if you're a product manager or your product owner, you know, you, you should be accountable towards the success or failure of this MVP initiative. And you have, you should have in your organization line of sight to the PNL uh, of this, of this kind of um, endeavor. So in order to keep in an enterprise side, I think it requires a lot of stakeholder alignment um, in, in an, in an, org in an enterprise organization, because you got to go, you got to speak to your stakeholders um, you got to create some sort of like product requirements document for it. Uh, and you need to go and get your team members. So like, you know, typically in an MVP team, uh, you have, uh, a designer, an engineer and a product manager, and then sometimes like a marketer, you know, who supports them. Uh, and with that kind of core pod team, you should have enough in order to go and build an MVP. So when you try to budget that out, try to figure out what is the cost of each person working on this project over a series of sprints or months um, and work with them to help define what the uh, work back schedules are or what the estimates are for those requirements that you want to create of the MVP. If you could forecast that out, that effectively becomes your budget in a way, right? Now, anyway, there's always a theoretical side, but then there's like the real the realistic side, which is like, you should predict some spillover, obviously, and how much that is varies per industry or complexity. So like, I would say it could be upwards of 30% more than what your original budget was that you should account for. And so when you're presenting the budget, try to account for that in your presentation to those kind of stakeholders for approval and have like a, you know, a range ideally if possible. Um, so yeah, um, that's what I would say for enterprises. Who is ultimately, and very quickly, who is ultimately responsible for keeping MVP on on budget and beyond that one core feature? Uh, like, I think without a doubt, it comes down to the product manager. Uh, the product manager should be accountable and responsible for uh, the journey or then the success of this MVP creation uh, within their organization, even if it's a startup uh, or an enterprise. If you're a startup, you're probably the CEO who's doing this. And then if you're in an enterprise, uh, you probably are a product manager or senior product manager or whatnot who's, who's initiating it. And the most successful conversations I had with product managers around these type of things are uh, the individuals who's who have the line of sight and visibility into um, uh, the budgeting and to like the the PNL side of the financials of this type of project. Um, it might be hard going and asking, okay, what are what are the costs of a certain employee on a team? Uh, but to be successfully, I think planning this out, you do need to have some sort of you know, number that you could work within in order for you to create a budget uh, that uh, you present to your stakeholders. But without a doubt, I, I, I don't see who else would be responsible other than the product we, manager. We do have quite a lot of points to cover in Turgut. I'm going to come back to you in just one second. Um, now, when we look at the MVPs, so many of them fail. And the reason they fail is because of so, so many different things. But a lot of the times, it's some of those parts in the MVP flow are being skipped. So on a very brief 
level on a, on a very, um, maybe a few sentences, what are some of the areas of MVPs that you see that are skipped the most? We'll start with Torgood and then you around. Yeah, so I think the most important part is the problem, the problem they are trying to solve. And usually the customer assumes that they have nailed down the problem statement really, really well. And they start like they start, they like to start around the discussion of a solution. So you cannot skip from problem to solution. The problem has to be validated. So what are so this is the problem? What are your assumptions? So this is a huge problem for X group of people. Okay. Is that validated? What data do we have to support that? Okay. So X, let's say the uh, scenario, it, the X group of target customers is validated. Do they really need X um, solution? Right. Then you can start thinking about that. And it doesn't really have to be a product uh, as well. Right. So that is the actual burning point. So you really need to think about that. And before getting to solution, you need to th clearly think through what are your success criteria and what are the limits that you're playing within right so uh, i had a, a example where it was a public company and they were trying to do mvp that uh, was mostly internal uh, solution but it was going to be exposed to external clients as well and they weren't planning to fail on the mvp right so if you are not planning to fail you are you're not going to succeed. Uh, it's fairly simple. The, the reason why a lot of MVPs fail because at the end of the day, we can uh, validate so many assumptions and we really have to bring that product to the user and we will miss a lot of things. We will, this is basically a learning process. So you need to maximize on learnings and minimize the rest of, rest of it. Why, the reason we are doing minimum viable product because we want to learn the most is minimum effort. Right, so the more you can maximize that, then your quantity of learnings will eventually lead to a quality of decision around your final product. So that's something that is skipped a lot. Uh, I feel in from doesn't matter what type of customer it is, startup, enterprise, public companies, and we need to make sure that the customer is okay to fail and make sure that that learning is actually valuable. To them given the budget and time they're spending on it because it's you cannot you can never tie an mvp to a expected roi hey i'm going to spend 50k to get a million out of this that's never going to happen because it's very very hard to pro like project when you have so many assumptions that you're trying to validate through the mvp yeah uh thanks Sergey. i think you said it really well just to add on that um, the biggest part that's always uh, present when it comes to why MVPs fail is just 100% customer development. Like, um, I think execution is definitely another part, you know, that could lead to uh, an issue. But I would say that you probably failed in execution because you didn't do customer development correctly. Um, so, for example, uh, ways you could do it is if you're a B2B, if you're a B2B company, um, uh, you can uh, go and find who your uh, ICPs are on things like LinkedIn. Uh, if you have access to LinkedIn Sales Navigator, you could go on LinkedIn, uh, create a list of all the people that are in that defined target audience. You can pull that data out. You can uh, enrich it, get the contact information, then create a landing page um, 
uh, you know, if it's tied to your existing company brand, or if you want to test it out objectively, create something else and send traffic to that landing page um, and see what type of conversions, what kind of things like resonate. Uh, there's also many other kind of tools out there that could get you access to like that type of audience. Uh, but we've seen like a lot of success where, you know, if you're a B2C company, you know, your buyers are also your users. So you have that kind of advantage. Um, so when you want to go and validate something, you know, one great place to start is spending a bit of money on paid advertising, sending some paid traffic, uh, which is defined of like your audience through things like Facebook and things like that, um, to it and seeing what, you know, what's working, what's not working, what kind of value proposition is sticking, try to do some, uh, AB comparables, you know, on these landing pages in terms of messaging and things like that, uh, and value propositions. And then you can pretty quickly see like, you know, what kind of things are sticking, what are not. And then once you have those people who submit their information, um, reach out to them, speak to them, make them your evangelists. Uh, if they provide you your email, then create some sort of like incentive for, for you to get on a call with them, for them to get on a call with you, sorry. And ask them more pointed questions in terms of like um, some of the other, you know, aspects of what you're trying to solve for uh, in, in, um, in the problem side and make those people your evangelists and carry them through with you all the way uh, and while you're building it. So you're always having somebody or some group of people that you could always reach out to. And, you know, maybe if, if that is going well and you have a large amount of uh, interest, create a community around that group because then they are all share the same pain point that you're, you're doing. So maybe there's like a lot of learnings that they could share with each other. Um, but like, I think if you do customer development, well, the execution should be a breeze because then technology is so commoditized these days in terms of like UI kits to frameworks and no code solutions that you could really just kind of, uh, stream through this process a lot easier if you properly validated uh your mvp yeah but the other thing that yes um just just in a second but but the other thing that happened and i've heard uh, what you triggered you were saying is the mindset because people have their own mindset when they build an mvp and if they don't ask themselves are you okay if the mvp fails which we actually talked about the last time then by definition you're trying to make it a success you're thinking about your mvp as an roi then everything else doesn't even matter because you have stakeholders if it's a larger mid-sized company, enterprise company that are already expecting you to build something more than the actual MVP. And, and when you have that wrong mindset, it doesn't, maybe you actually hit the right customers. Maybe you hit other areas correctly, but because their expectations are different and everybody thinks about quote unquote MVP, which is actually isn't in a different way, yeah. then it can't work. Yeah, exactly. So the mindset is extremely critical in these kind of scenarios. And if you don't get that right, it's very hard to also work with a client, right? So maybe we need to get alignment on that first. Hey, what's your success? Are you okay to fail? If not, what makes you like very uh, hesitant to fail? So maybe that's the part that you need to solve first. Um, again, I can give an example. Uh, we were looking to build an MVP and the same client wasn't looking to uh, spend like let's say 100 or 150k to uh, build the product because they really needed to know if what we were going to build was going to work as a technology, right? 
So you can actually do a smaller, much smaller discovery uh, phase where you can solve for those problems as you're thinking through the MVP. Because if you don't, through, if you don't solve through that, I think at the end of the day, you're trying to work with a client and client needs to be on board with you on the same, on the same page. So uh, you need to really be creative around those areas is understanding, okay, some stakeholders are concerned. Um, there are a lot of uncertainties, obviously. We need to make sure that they are actually on, on page with you. And what you, can, you have to really come up with steps to get that out of the way before thinking clearly about MVP and making it okay to fail. Um, that's one thing. And another thing Aram touched, and I think it's getting more and more important, is the community aspect of the customer development. And as the technology is getting commoditized, your real, what's, what's your real differentiator is that MVP. It needs to be there. So these days, it's really the communities that you build around these products, right? Especially early on, those like 1,000 through fans uh, a framework that's really, really getting more and more important. In the world of open source world, where all the technologies are basically free for everyone to use, how do you differentiate yourself versus the others? It's your brands, your community. So you really need to think about the community aspect, the customer development aspect, as much as the technology aspect. And that's where I think CrowdLink team does a really, really good job. And I'm currently working on a project um, and the tech side is equally important, but if you don't get the community right, if you don't have the user group of like people who are supporting the like product roadmap, who are supporting like the features that we are thinking to build and testing small things out as we are building the product to, to market. So that's our, that was something that I want to really highlight. I, I want to ask uh, about frameworks. I want to talk frameworks. Everybody talks about frameworks, but do they even really matter? Because there's tons of them. They are overhyped, no doubt. So people will be selling frameworks, like just do these six steps and not only in the MVP world, but in lots of pretty much any, any other area, including coaching and life coaching, which is completely unrelated, but just do these six, six steps and your MVP is going to be perfect. I want to ask, uh, and we're going to start with you Ram, what kind of frameworks, how do you think about frameworks in the MVP world? And if you think they're useful, which ones would you consider first to use? Yeah, good question. Um, so, I mean, there's the common, you know, lean canvas approach, which helps you kind of get some of your thoughts down on paper in terms of like, what's your unique advantage, your problem, you know, your user base, uh, you know, your audience, things like that. So that's always a good start. Um, the one that we typically use is um, it's, uh, it's a combination of three things. So there's the feasibility side, viability and desirability. So when when you're looking at feasibility it's really more like um is it is it really possible sorry feasibility is like is it technically possible um to build this right maybe there's some sort of, sort of technologies that exist that you know it just can't be done so feasibility is is it is it possible to complete technically the viability side is that is there an actual business here and so I think a lot of times this is kind of missed because, I mean, why do you create a business? Um, you create a business to create, to make money, right? So uh, there should always be some sort of like revenue tied to it potentially. Um, and so when you're speaking to customers, asking them point blank, you know, how much of a pain point is this that you're willing to pay for it? 
is something that a lot of people just are hesitant to ask because they're scared. But like, if you don't ask that question at the beginning, you're going to have an even harder time trying to get somebody to pay for it later because you're just basically going to be running around in circles trying to figure out what people are worth paying for it, right? So like, I would say that from a viability perspective, you should really just plan out the potential uh, business side of, of like how you're going to make money with this type of product. Uh, and I wouldn't really go and build a product if you can't validate with your target audience that willingness to pay for it, if it's a big enough problem. It's always a tough one to swallow, but like I would recommend something like some, you know, LOIs, if it's a B2B, uh, you know, it could be non-binding, preferably it's binding LOIs, you know, for pilot customers. And then you give them some sort of like a discount, you know, during the pilot phase that incentivizes them so that you know that they're really in it. Um, and then the last part is the desirability part. So like, that's like the human element. How desirable is this product really? Like, and that kind of ties back to like, um, um, the need, right? Um, does the need really exist? How big of a need is it? Uh, are there other ways to doing it? What's your kind of like unfair advantage that you have over it? Unfortunately, like when it comes to building products these days, um, a lot of things have been done already. So like, you know, I think to create something net new, that's going to be like the next Facebook, very difficult to come by, to be honest, but you could create something that's quite niche and focused towards your target audience and just double down on that. And you'd be surprised how you could build a business off of that. A thousand true fans. I'm sorry. A thousand true fans. A thousand true fans. Yeah. Now There's we nothing- have a, uh- there's nothing wrong with lifestyle businesses that, you know, you could sell for like 10, hundred million. You don't have to go for those big 1 billion kind of unicorn exits. Especially if you're thinking about the odds correctly. And that's what Gary Vaynerchuk preaches, whether you like him or don't like him, but there is a point. Nobody can, it's, it's difficult to build the next Facebook. Exactly. Now we have the first two questions from the listeners. Thank you guys for submitting them. For if you have other questions, please uh, also add your name so I know how to address you. Uh, We have a question from Marshall, which is about the legally enforceable commitments, which we will address uh, a a little bit later on. But then we have another question, which I wanted to bring up right now, uh, which is what do you think is best practice for usability testing slash beta testing for small startup? We have our testers, we just need to gather data what will get us the best results an equal amount of time for tasks and feedback? Uh, Aram, Artur, good. Anybody who wants to answer that? Sure. I'll start. Um, so I think with anything that you do, whether it's a alpha beta, um, phase in, in your, in your startup that you're working on, it's create some test cases in terms of what it is that you want to like test. I have it over a defined period of time uh, because, you know, when it comes to having an open beta, you know, you could be basically doing this forever, <laughs> but the goal is that you work very closely with those uh, beta users and you have a lot higher touch points and frequency of communication that you, they feel like they're part of the team. Ideally, that's how it should feel like. Um, when it comes to usability testing, it's like, yeah, make your test cases that you want to have. Uh, make sure that each person, when they're going through the beta test, are cognizant of like what it is that um, they're doing and what they're trying to test for. 
Um, there's many tools out there. Like you could use something like Hotjar. There's a few other ones which basically record all the sessions uh, of what each of each user is doing. So you could like literally see exactly what they're doing when they're using your product. So, so that's a great way to like get that type of data because then you could see whether or not they're following the optimal path that you wanted them to go on. And if they're not, then that's where you could quickly see from a usability perspective, what are some of the things you need to change and account for. Um, but again, there's also um, those tools that I mentioned that have access to doing usability testing uh, that Ali posted in the chat that you could basically go and put your product it could be a clickable prototype. It could be on Figma. It could be an actual live product that's living on like a website. Uh, you could put it on there and you could define the, the testing uh, audience that you wanted to have. And you could put in type of questions that you want them to answer and uh, run the campaign. And um, you could see basically how they use it. You can see their answers to your uh, questions while they're using the product. So it's like very like transparent. Uh, sometimes it might be a bit costly depending on like the specific specificity of your target audience, but uh, because you know uh, it might not be that available in quantities. But you know there's an abundance of like these type of uh, tools out there that you could definitely use in order to help you with that. Now, I want to uh, switch uh, gears to talk uh, about the topic, but not to get too in-depth because uh, we have another one which we uh, need to cover, which is an example of a well-built MVP, which we have done for reported. But before we get to that, no code. We, we know some of the benefits of no code. No code's been preached. Uh, everybody talks about no code. But I wanted to start with what are the reasons, what are the uh, use cases when not to use the no-code solution, when the no-code code option is not a good for an MVP. Turgut, this one is for you, and then we'll, uh, we'll uh, go to Aram. Yeah, so in most of the startup cases, uh, it's fairly standard practice these days where you just want to go into the market and try to test it. One thing that is very hard with no-code solutions is that Sometimes it's very st st structured that you cannot really adjust based on your specific solution because a simple tweak in your product can be a very niche product for a specific user, right? So it's very, um, but still re regardless of that, um, um, like con, you, it's very applicable for startups, but more so in the enterprise world, it's very hard to rely on a no-code based uh, product because eventually you need to scale out of that uh, solution, right? So it's really not applicable to enterprise as much as the, uh, and there are some like legal barriers to it and all that stuff, which is very, is very unpredictable. So you want to basically protect that, uh, protect yourself as an enterprise. So uh, I would say startups is very, applicable, but only caveat is you cannot really fine tune uh, based on, because you're really trying to build a niche product and it's very hard to build a niche product with a uh, no code based solutions because they are usually built for scale, scaling a, like a, basically a platform that can help you create your course, right? It, it basically looks exact same thing. If you want to differentiate yourself on a specific thing, you cannot really do that, but it's very good for uh, average 
person who doesn't know how to code, just go in there, create their page, put their content, and then boom, they're ready for uh, for market. But that's not the usual case for a lot of cases in the enterprise and in some cases in the startup world. Yeah, just the only thing to add on that when it comes to using no-code solutions in um, in enterprises is I think there's nothing wrong with using um, a, a, you know, a, a, a tech stack early on in order to build out your MVP for it. But what has been happening with some of the clients that we work with when it comes to that is that they hit the limits quite quickly um, when the product starts to scale um, uh, because they can't control a lot of the backend side of it. They can't really control the APIs. So like if they need faster response times, faster load times. They're basically at the mercy of whatever the no-code solution, you know, is capable of. Um, and then I would say that you might start hitting limits in terms of like really expanding out the feature sets in a no-code environment. Um, you would still have to potentially get a no-code developer to work with you uh, in, you know, certain custom situations. And so what typically ends up happening, what we've seen is that when the product is in production and it needs to scale, a lot of companies revert back off of no-code uh, tech stacks and, and build out something that can sustain the type of growth that they need because then they have a lot more control uh, of everything from the back end to the front end. Now, I want to talk about an example of the well-built MVP that we have done, which we actually have brought up in our first um, MVP live event, but it's a good example. It's also a startup, so it's very applicable. That's why we keep bringing it up. It is a reported, which is a mobile app that gives users a way to report issues they see around them, like road kills, live wires, broken elevators, right? Those types of things. So they connect concerned citizens with the right authority in the government to fix them. Now, with regards to the MVP for uh, reported, Aram, what were some of the things that made it successful? Maybe some things that were uh, that differentiate uh, the reported MVP that were like key to making it work well. Yeah. Um, so I mean, the premise of this type of like uh, product feature is nothing net new. Like there were products out there in the market that did the exact same thing, but from our research when we're looking at the competitors it was actually quite, there was a lot of steps involved. It was a bit convoluted in terms of like being able to accomplish your end goal. And so when we worked with the client uh, who originally came to us with like literally like some chicken scratch, you know, that they put together in terms of what, you know, a screen would look like, it really helped us like say, okay, this is like a much more simpler kind of approach that we need to take in order to just get the job to be done. And the job to be done in this time was, uh, uh, you know, a person who's like, you know, find something that they could just capture it, report it, and then they could like, you know, go on with their day. Uh, they did their kind of like piece of, uh, of being a good citizen and, um, they continue on with like the rest of the day. So, um, I think what, what really helped us also quite a bit was, um, we kept the design really simple, um, you're able to basically achieve your whole goal in three clicks or less. Um, we used um, an existing UI kit. So there's like an abundance of UI kits already in the market. Don't try to go and re reinvent the wheel. 
you know, if you're building out an MVP, just leverage the Google material design um, or use something like Tailwinds as another option. Um, and really just try to keep the design really simple. If it doesn't look pretty, that's okay. If you're ashamed of shipping your product, that is okay. And so when we were working with our client, we just made sure of that. And we were aligned on the fact that it doesn't have to look pretty. It just has to get the job done. Um, and uh, we, we achieved that. Um, some things that helped us kind of like make it possible within like the timeline and scope that we were using was we relied on uh, things like Google Firebase in order to power our entire backend um, to manage that aspect. The, the front end, we used um, uh, an existing framework library uh, where we connected it to the UI kit system that we got from, um, um, from an open source place. And so we basically used as much off the shelf solutions as possible instead of trying to create anything net new. And that and, was because it was the budget. Um, it was a budget limitation, or was it because there was a timeline, or both? Uh, it was really more of a budget limitation than a timeline. You know, I have this type of budget. I want to work within. What can we do to make it possible? And you know, in that situation, it was like, okay, we're not going to go and custom design or custom build anything. We're really just going to go and use a lot of off-the-shelf solutions to get the same thing done because the product that they needed it's doable using off-the-shelf solutions. Like there was access to it. It's not like something doesn't exist that required us to go and build something for it. So we basically cherry-picked certain you know, uh, solutions that were uh, available to us and we stitched it all together uh, with minimal effort. Um, and you know, it did the job that was required. Um, I think the part that just required a bit more thinking was, um, I would say the interactions on how people take pictures, how people do videos, and then how they see the end result, you know, really quickly, because, uh, the most important thing is that when somebody was completing an activity, they want to make sure it properly rendered as quickly as possible. So they know that it was submitted. Uh, so what we were trying to focus on at the end of the day was really to optimize the, the time of, uh, of submission and feedback that came back to the user. Um, but yeah, I mean, we were able to do that within a certain budget, um, within a certain timeline as well. Uh, so yeah, it was a successful MVP, I would say. Right. Uh, I want to talk about, and Turga, this one is uh, for you. I want to talk about the budgets. Let's say we look at, we'll take the reported example. If, if, if it's a startup, let's say they are looking for an agency to build their MVP, not necessarily us, because we're not promoting Crowdlinker directly. That's not the put, that's not the purpose of the event. But, you know, there's a product studio or product agency. They have, like, what budget do they need to be thinking about? If it's the dead simple MVP they want to build, maybe we'll take a reported as an example um, of, of a concept or, and maybe something a little bit more advanced. What kind of numbers should they be thinking about if it's a startup? I will say it really depends on the type of project. Uh, you can do stuff for like 20K and go as much as 150 to 200K range. It really depends on what the client is really trying to accomplish and depends on the complexity, the timing uh, and expectations, right? So um, 
usually from 50 to 150K would be a good start. Um, but really, we need to know, okay, uh, are we going to use off-the-shelf solutions? What's the timeline we have? Because the shorter timelines usually means we have to put more people and it, it increases the risk as well, as well, because we have shorter time frames to work with. Uh, so we need, really need to think about those uh, areas before answering those questions. And in this case, usually discovery a phase for projects that you have many uncertainties, that's going to probably save you from a lot of future problems around budgeting, timelines, expectations. So even if it looks like an extra cost, it usually saves you much more because imagine you're doing a half a million dollar project and if it blows just by 10%, it's already 50K. You might as well just spend like 25 to 50K early on to have a much more clear vision of what you're going to deliver, what are the expectations and what are the end results that you're expecting from it. So if I have to suggest anything around budgeting and if you want to be crystal clear, uh, make room and time and budget for discovery. And that's certainly a must because if you don't do that, then there will be a lot of uncertainties and misaligned uh, communications and we have to really rush to solutions. And that's really a recipe for failure. And take your time to do a proper discovery, understand your problems, understand who you're doing it for, expectation management, and then jump into development. If in our cases, we had customers who were rushing to development and we said, Let's slow down. Let's make sure we can get these assumptions out of the way because it's still going to affect how we start development. And usually in, in most of the cases, when you do a discovery, you get to learn and it helps you to de-scope much more easily. And sometimes it actually saves you money, right? So that's, that would be my two cents on it. Ram, anything to add to that? In terms of how much budget you should plan for? Yes. Yes, for startups, how to, I mean, uh, Turgut mentioned, gave some good points about how to think about that. Um, anything else? I mean, of course, we're talking very gen general terms, but even in general terms, like just in terms of thinking about it. Yeah, you know, it kind of varies, as Turgut said, but like, what is an MVP, you know, at, at the base level? Like, um, it could be... It could be a calculator. It could be a tool. It could be a website, you know, uh, that's trying to portray or, you know, achieve a certain goal for you. Like MVPs are quite broad in terms of like a definition. Um, I think where it gets more complicated in terms of like allocations of budget and spend is when you have to go and actually create um, something that requires the stitching together of off-the-shelf solutions or creating something custom that uh, requires some integration or, you know, things like that. So I, I would say a lot of MVPs that we've come across in many, in many ways, they're just really more integrations in order between different types of tools or APIs, which then render something net new uh, for the customer. And so you know, that's, you're basically creating something new from something else. And, you know, that just requires just connecting a bunch of APIs. So like, you know, we've done integration, things like that, which turn out to be like MVPs for like less than 10,000, but, um, it just really depends, uh, what you're trying to achieve and the product they're trying to build. But, you know, I would say if you're a startup, um, 
you should have a, a, a budget to build out an MVP from the low end, from say 25 to 50,000. If you have a very, very focused type of product that you know you want to create um, and just make sure that uh, the partner who you do with uh, shares a very common and equal understanding of what it is that you're trying to achieve, um, whether that's an agency or a freelance developer. Um, and ideally, they should have some experience prior to having done something like that before. Yes. Yes. Uh, guys, if you are on, uh, for those who are on the call, and thank you guys for being with us. It's, uh, it's 50 minutes in. We're uh, getting closely, close to wrap up. Um, type your questions into the chat. If you still wanted to ask us something, uh, please do so. Uh, I'm, we, we're going to talk about the enforceable commitments. This was a question from Marshall. Uh, let me read it. So Marshall's asking, what kind of, kinds of written legally enforceable commitments uh, us as CrowdLinker make to clients regarding confidentiality. Yeah, good question. Is, uh, um, yeah, for you. Yeah. Yeah. So right off the bat, before we even kind of really start going deeper into um, more serious or more detailed conversations, we always have a mutual uh, non-disclosure agreement that we sign, which stipulates like that we, um, whatever we discuss basically is, um, locked or closed off for a period of a year, sometimes for two years. Uh, so we can't publicly discuss it. Um, we also have stipulations around how we use the data or how we use the code, um, you know, when the projects are, are done and delivered. So, you know, a lot of the time we, we don't use the code anymore. We destroy it or we transfer it over to our clients in terms of ownership. Um, so that's worked fine for us. We've never had any issues. Um, we also have some specific clauses around confidentiality in our statements of work and master service agreements, which go into more detail on that. But um, at the end of the day, the only thing I would say when it comes to NDAs, I'm happy to sign them and do it, but an idea is just an idea. Uh, it all just comes down to execution at the end of the day. And a lot of people get really paranoid. And unless you have something very unique and exclusive that gives you that total unfair advantage in the market, which you know is rare these days, um, if you do have that, then I totally see the and warrant the re requirement for an NDA. Uh, that's quite enforceable. Um, but at the end of the day, an idea is just an idea, and so like, um, you know, things are most likely going to change. Like once you start working on the project, that initial idea you have is probably, I want to say 90% likely to pivot in some shape or form. Um, and that's good because you want to like learn and fail as quickly as you can at the beginning. Uh, and then um, the execution side that once you have your customer development stuff figured out and you've probably validated the business, the execution is the next part. And so then it becomes, you know, a bit more important to then figure that aspect out, but um, hopefully that answers your question. Sorry, I rambled there. 
No, no, that makes perfect sense. And Marshall, please let us know because uh, we can we can always follow up and uh, uh, and talk in more detail about it. But uh, we are coming uh, close to an end, which was an awesome discussion. We can keep going because there's so much more to talk about MVPs. But we have uh, we have a uh, six minutes left. I wanted to bring it up to you, Turgut, or uh, you back, Aram. Is what do you would you like to leave your our audience with? If they are right now building an MVP, if they are in the process of building their MVP, beyond of what we have covered, we talked about the budget, we talked about uh, how do you look at the customers, uh, we talked a lot about about a bunch of other things. What is your uh, final message to the audience and uh, anything you'd like to uh, leave people with? Uh, we'll start with Turgut and uh, back to Europe. Yeah, so obviously a lot of the discussions we have had in the last hour applies. But I think what I would like to leave the audience with, audience with, and I'm happy to take questions after offline as well, what's the purpose of your MVP, right? Uh, so you, you need to nail that down as much as you can. Is that to collect data? Meaning, are you trying to collect data? If someone is using it, how much they're using it, what's their behavior data, anything that you're trying to accomplish. So are you trying to collect data? So you really need, don't need to fuss about the design of the product, how it is marketed and all that stuff, you're really truly caring about, okay, can I get some traction? So that's that type of data, right? So, and are you trying to increase the value to your customer through a different new feature? Or are you trying to manage your risk with going to a market with a different name and trying to learn about your customer, all right? So that's another thing. And, and the other aspect of the MVP is, are you, because you're are you building MVP just to get to market faster, right? So that's a different purpose. So if you've figured this out with your success criteria, so once you know, okay, I'm trying to collect data, what's your success criteria? It will clean up a lot of the noise within your discussions, I feel, and which has helped us a lot tremendously. Um, and it will definitely help you clean out your assumptions with your MVP as well. Around. Yeah, so I'm going to put this from like a startup lens. So a lot of the clients that we work with who build out an MVP or a V1 of their product, success criteria for many of them is I want to go and validate and then go and raise money. Um, so I think when it comes to that line of thinking, a lot of investors who are going to be looking at it are they're going to be looking at your traction. They're going to be looking at how well you validated it, um, how accessible is that target demographic that you have um, built this MVP or this you know product around. Um, what is it going to cost you to acquire more you know users? You know from a growth perspective, what's your cost of acquisition look like, and these type of things. And so it's always very hard to get. Um, bombarded or uh, what's the word um, it, it gets kind of murky when you, you know you start thinking about all these different things but what I would say is focus on your customers is like the most important part when it comes to building out any type of solution whether you're a startup a CEO whether or not you're a product manager in the enterprise focus on the customers make that like your only focal point you know in terms of your decision-making process everything that you do it should be like is this going to appease to my customers 
um, is it going to uh, make them stick around and, you know, not churn and, you know, I could have higher retention and things like that. Um, because it's very hard to have good or to achieve lifetime value with customers. And if you could properly demonstrate that, um, that's what your investors are going to be looking for. Because, you know, an idea is an idea. How well you execute it is also, you know, quite important. But I think it just really comes down to um, if somebody was to come into the market and try to compete against you, what would it take for that other customer or that other business to go and try to like work against you? If you have that unfair advantage where your mission is like, I'm only focused about my customers and I'm building the best product for them. And you have like loyalty on that side, very hard to buy that or recreate that as another business trying to compete against you because that's what gives you that real um, angle um, that makes you attractive for investment. Thank you, Ram. Thank you, Turgo. This was amazing. Thank you guys for joining our conversation. Uh, it, well, it's an hour. It doesn't feel like it was 58 minutes. But if you have questions for Ram, if you have questions for Turgo, if you have any questions for me, we're all available on LinkedIn. We will leave all our contact information below uh, the recording of this event. Of course, we're going to share it on YouTube. We are going to share it on our podcast, which would be Product Innovation Show, uh, available on Apple and Spotify uh, and Google Podcasts. So lots of different ways for us. Uh, uh, you to reach out and uh, listen to this event uh, if you'd like thank you for participating thank you for joining we are going to we are doing these events in the future uh, so um, you uh, stay tuned for that of course uh, we will put that on our linkedin and everything so you can uh, get in touch and and, and sign up um, thank you so much for joining it was a pleasure uh, this is the number two mvp live event and uh, it's done awesome thank you everybody thank you thanks for much. joining Thank Hope you, you enjoyed it.